am, we are amazed at what God has done over the life of this church. For you all to be who you are, to have a vision and a sense and a ministry of wanting to, to move out and, and to spread the gospel of grace to your communities, to each other, that you gather, that you have a beautiful building, a setting to be able to allow this to occur, that you have a presence, that you have a mission. Um, you, not an overstatement. This church is, to most pastors in our presbytery, the envy of Houston Metro Presbytery. What God has accomplished in and through you, your pastor and their family, and everybody else that's been here, you just need a third-party optic. You need to trust me. Uh, God has done a wonderful work here. Uh, you're not without your faults, of course. You're not without your of course. Uh, but God has done a, a great work here. And I know that most of you that are new, you're going like, what's he talking about? I'm talking about 1987, 88, 89, and then David finally came, and we, you know, we had a partner in ministry, and, and my word, look what God has done. Uh, and, and we give thanks for that and are, are very grateful and thankful. Um, I do have a bone to pick with Mark Moore. We can do that later. Uh, <coughs> we, uh, David invited me down. Uh, Christine and I came down early, early on and, uh, with Mark and Leslie, and they took us out to lunch. And I, I didn't know Mark at the time, but I should have anticipated that he had an agenda. And I was being overhauled, man. I tell you what, he, um, because he loves Texas A&M. And he wanted to be sure that I understood that Aggie Land is a special place, uh, in which it was. We spent 11 great years there, um, uh, but you all as a church were, were behind us and with us and praying for us and supporting us in ways that uh, I never adequately had a chance to say thank you. So uh, we very much appreciate that. Uh, we're going to turn and look at a very brief passage today in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it's sometimes known as a benediction. Uh, benedictions sometimes are kind of cheated because we say it's a good word. For God, giving a benediction to the Apostle Paul is more than just a good word. Um, it is grace extended uh, by God through his Apostle to this young church. This is Paul's first letter. It's written somewhere around 50, 51 A.D. Um, and it is known as his most affectionate letter. Young church, young Christians trying to figure things out. And they suddenly turn at each other and say, Hey Paul, we didn't know that becoming a Christian was going to complicate our lives and make it very difficult. We thought a follower of Christ makes things easy. No. <laughs> Sinclair Ferguson says it's, it's the great awakening for most of us when we suddenly understand that following Christ in this world, now being aware of our sin, the flesh, the devil, but also of His grace, um, we're in a battle. We're swinging. So at the end of the letter, like any good writer, he's going to save the best for last. And he's going to bless them with this benediction, trying to, as in all of Scripture, take their eyes off of their circumstances, take their eyes off of themselves, their sin, uh, their infighting, and even the oppression that they're feeling. They're, I mean, they are, they are being persecuted. And try and remember that God is at work in you, through you, and in spite of you. And that is the wonder of the gospel of grace. That when He sent His Spirit and sealed you with it, that we now knew that despite myself, He is at work in me, through me, and in spite of me. And i got to figure out how to believe it, because by believing it, I am empowered and encouraged.
Let's see how he does it. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, just a couple verses here at the end, beginning with verse 23. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The One who calls you is faithful. And He will do it. Pray with me briefly. Father, send Your Spirit. Uh, Come, Holy Spirit, come. Um, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond. Um, We are a desperate people. And we need Your encouragement. And we need uh, Your challenge today. We pray that You would uh, use it through this part of Your Scriptures that You encouraged a church long ago uh, who was trying to figure out where they could find strength for this journey. Give it to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Church history says that back in 1553, back across the pond in France, there were five young pastors, um, and they were getting ready to be executed for their faith. Uh, They had brought the gospel of grace in ways that offended um, the medieval church, um, and that politically the, uh, the sword was going to be wielded, and they were going to die. Uh, a young pastor named John Calvin wrote them a very brief letter, very brief, where he had the sole goal of trying to encourage them. Five men sitting in a cell, getting ready to be martyred for their faith, he writes this, Now, young men, at this present hour, necessity itself exhorts you more than ever to turn your whole mind heavenward. Easy to say. As yet, we know not what the event will actually be, but since it appears as though God would use your blood to seal His truth, there is nothing better for you than to prepare yourselves for that end. Asking and begging God so to subdue you to His good pleasure that nothing may hinder you from following Him wherever He shall call you. And this is the way he finishes it since it pleases Him to employ you to the death in maintaining His quarrel, here's the promise, He will strengthen your hands in the fight, and He will not allow a single drop of your blood to be shed in vain. What did Calvin do to encourage men that knew that they were going to die? He took promises from God's Word, and he said, this must be bedrock for you now. This is the only way you're going to make it through. He will not allow a single drop of your blood to be shed in vain. Number two, He will strengthen your hands in this time. Number three, He will see you through to the end. Why did Calvin write that? Because there is power in a promise believed. It is the upside-down, counterintuitive nature of the Word of God as well as the Kingdom of God, and that is, as it said in the front of the bulletin, that the effectiveness, the power of a promise lies in the One who made the promise. God is coming to these people and saying, I am going to continue to work in you and through you and in spite of you to the very end. I am going to see to it that you go from A to Z. I will carry you. I will provide for you. Nothing can stop it. Nothing. Not even your own sin. 
God is at work in, through, and in spite of us. And he, he, he comes and, and tries to get them away to say, in the very same way that trusting God's promises empowers us and gives us strength for our journey. I don't know your struggles today. I know mine. I've been, I've been walking with the Lord for almost 35 years when I was converted in college. Um, I've been in ordained ministry for 32. Uh, I'll save the snarkiness. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know your place, but I know this. You can't surprise me. You cannot. Um, you just can't. And you can't surprise the Lord. So Paul comes to these dear people red hot with death, persecution, and confusion and, and starts off by saying the first promise has something to do with the past. When he starts off in verse 23, he says, may God Himself, the God of, the God of peace, well, that's an interesting word choice, isn't it? God of peace. So what kind of peace is this? Is it political peace? Uh, was there political peace in Jesus' day? In Paul's day? No, it's not political peace. Um, how about world peace? Was there world peace in Jesus' day? No. Was there world peace in Paul's day? Is there world peace in our day? Is there political peace in our day? Of course not. It's not even talking what where Philippians talks about, that subjective, kind of that psychological tranquility that we long for, uh, that the Gospel does bring us. There is this sense of God loves me, He's redeemed me, He's at work in the world, He's at work in me, and I am at peace. It's not talking about that. Uh, it's a little early to be singing Christmas carols. Not for me. I, I, I need them all year long. Um, if, you, if you were to come and kind of watch the Yates household during Advent... Um, you would come to know very quickly that our, our, our most prized and treasured uh, TV Christmas special is it's a Charlie Brown's Christmas. And I thought you were going to laugh at me. You know, Charles Schultz, who, who wrote the comic strip for years, um, in the best sense of the word, was an evangelical, Bible-believing, Lutheran Christian. And he, if you read, you know, he would he would kind of throw it in there every once in a while, you know. And but this one was full bore. They told him not to do it. He did it. They asked him to pull it. He didn't. Um, what what we love are so many things, but at the end, where Charlie Brown, who is truly melancholy and trying to find the true meaning of Christmas, comes out and looks at that little Christmas tree, and they finally fix this thing up to, to be able to stabilize it. And they turn and they face the camera, and they start singing. Do you know what they sung? Yes, you do. Say it. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That is the peace that Paul is extending to these people. That God ain't angry no more. That what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross, that He took the 18-wheeler head-on of God's justice and of God's wrath, and he met it, and he covered it, and he, he banished it. Paul is trying to say, if you are going to make it in the Christian life, if you're going to find strength for your battles and strength for your journey, you, you must continually come back to this. Is God angry at you or not? Was his justice and his wrath banished forever and met by, and covered by Christ? Or is he still after a pound of your flesh when you sin? 
It's not something you can only decide once in the Christian life, I guarantee you. But here's what happens if you don't do battle with that. If you don't constantly say, is he the God of reconciliation and peace? Is the war really over between God and me? Because if it is, I want to live like a person who is under the peace of God forever because of Jesus Christ. What happens if you don't? Just speaking to those of you that are Christians. You become an angry Christian. Isn't that a beautiful world? Uh, You become an angry spouse, an angry husband, an angry wife. You produce angry children who produce angry children and grandchildren. I mean, it is just insidious. The Gospel comes at the very heart of what we need to know and believe and rest in. That the nature of God's character is that He is the God of peace. That He has finally reconciled us forever to Himself. I just don't know how else to say it. So, look, look, Martin Luther. Okay, Martin Luther, the, you know, the crazy Augustinian monk back in the 16th century, 95 theses, you know, started a, the Reformation that brought the gospel to bear in great, new, powerful ways. He said this, If I was persuaded that God was no longer angry with me, I would stand on my head. What do we know about Luther's physique? Kind of short stocky, and carried weight. He was stout because he loved to drink a lot of his stout. And he now, with not a gymnast body, is going to stand on his head an impossible feat for one reason. Because I'm finally persuaded that he loves me. That the war is over. And that he has reconciled me to himself through the shed blood of Christ. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Do you walk around wondering when God is going to smite you next and get His pound of flesh out of you? You only have two... You have three options in terms of motivation to live the Christian life. Only three. Fear-based, grace-based, or some combination of the two. Fear-based is um, you're just going to end up hating God. Uh, because you're, you're afraid of him. Fear, fear is a very effective uh, motivator in the short term, but it's a very poor motivator in the long term. It's terrible. That's why people end up hating us or hating God. Fear ba- grace-based. The God of peace did everything to acquire and secure this peace for me. Or, or the, uh, the schizophrenic combination of he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me today. Why? It's usually because we've done something we think would be pleasing to Him. He loves me not. Why? Because I've sinned. I mean, this is a journey back and forth that the Gospel comes and says He's the God of peace. He secured it. Everything. Why won't you believe it? Well, let me tell you why I don't believe it. Or why I struggle with it. Uh, Do you remember that Jesus went out on the lake and uh, was with the disciples? And Luke tells us he was asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion, right? And the boat gets swamped. And uh, a couple of the disciples get their nerve up and um, they think they're going to die. No, they think they're going to die. I mean, the boat is swamped. So the the level of the sea and the level of the water in the boat are the same. I mean, it's swamped, right? And they thought that these are seasoned fishermen. They They live on the lake. 
But this squall has taken them. They go back and one, the, the text says that one of them punched Jesus awake and said, don't you care that we're about to die? It's a very dangerous thing to look at the Savior of the world and say, don't you care? So he gets up, quiet, be still, right? Wind in the waves. They're amazed. Who is this that even the wind in the waves obey him? Wonderful promise. And then he looks at the disciples and says, where is your faith? He didn't say, uh, what is your faith? Or, he said, it, it's an interrogative of locations. Where have you placed your faith? You have everything you need to believe this. Where, you have focused your faith on something else besides me. Well, of course, the wind, the waves, the near-death experience, we understand it. Yet Jesus calls them back and says, I am the God of peace. And if you will fix yet your heart each day, many times a day, constantly, on believing that I took the wrath of God head on upon that cross and God is no longer angry with you. You have been reconciled by the shed blood of Christ. He loves you and He's at peace with you. As the old country preacher likes to say, God ain't mad at you no more. His wrath has been stilled and quenched. So Paul says, What's the first thing we do? We, we, we go back and say, um, I'm asking God for more grace and more strength that He is the one who has, past tense, who has, it's a past, it's a past event that has present value. He has reconciled us to Himself. Let's move on. The, the second one actually comes as uh, Paul continues on through verse 23. May God Himself, speaking about the personal God, the God of peace, and now here it is, sanctify you through and through. Present tense. Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only the past event becomes the object of my trust, He has reconciled me to Himself. Past. Present. He has and is transforming you now. Uh, the, the translation that we're using, the NIV, does not say at the beginning of verse 23, now may God Himself, it's actually in the Greek text, right here and now. Right now, God is at work in you, through you, and in spite of you, changing you to be more and more like Jesus Christ, if I understand that right. Some look at the passage and say, no, 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 he, he's saying, May God do that. It's, a, it's kind of a wish. It's not a wish at all. He grounds it in the character of God at the end. He will surely do it. This is going on. Right now, right here in this church, with all your, with all your own personal issues, with all your struggles, with all your sins, with all your hurts, with all your fears, your struggle is part of your story. Nobody, not even Jesus, gets an end run on it. He, we went down the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. Our suffering, our, our, our struggles are part of our story. And yet when Paul comes and he says, but you need to know that even in that, God is at work. This is, this is nuts. This is so counterintuitive to everything the world will tell you. That God is in, at work in the midst of your mess and my mess. Right now. 
when we went to do RUF at Texas A&M, we were so thankful for the, uh, for the philosophy of ministry and the training we got. And uh, RUF is, 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 sits on six presuppositions, the whole ministry. And number three is my favorite because it got me out of bed every day when I didn't want to get out of bed. It helped calm my fears. It at times rebuked me. At times it encouraged me. It motivated me. But most of all, it gave me hope. It comes from John 5 where the Pharisees are, are beating up on Jesus, mocking Him. And you, where is your father? You know, is He dead? You know, where is He? Did He leave you? And Jesus turns to verse 17 and says, My Father is at work to this very day, and I too am working. The presupposition number three of, of the entire ministry is God is at work. God is at work. In, through, and in spite of you. There it is. May He sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify you through and through. Mind, body, soul. Some people say, you know, Paul's trying to give us a little anatomy of the human soul. I don't think so. I think he's saying all of God's work touches every area of your life. Everything. He wastes nothing. He uses everything in your life. Everything to conform us and transform us into the image of Christ. And so what Paul is doing here, he's trying to bring their vision back and say, not only has God, something, has God done something in your past forever, but He is doing something now in your heart, in your family, in your marriage, in your children. In this church, God is at work. In this community, in this world, I know that raises a lot of questions, but what about? You don't know me. You don't know my life. You don't, this world's a mess. How could God be working? Because He works through mess. It's the wonder of the Gospel. God is at work in us, through us, and in spite of us. Uh, back to Luther just for a quick moment. Uh, so when they were, they were trying to begin to continue to teach and get out the Gospel back in that 16th century, he had a sidekick named Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was by personality and temperament, he was a melancholy. He, he was born with a melancholic down, tended to be pessimistic, glass half empty um, uh, temperament. People say, oh, God could never use somebody like that. Come on, don't you kidding me? We're all different types. He uses all of us. <clears throat> Melanchthon had fallen and spiraled into, um, into a depression. And Luther and two of his friends would go over and visit him once a week to try and encourage him. And uh, they had been doing this for a while, and Philip was, uh, he, he found no encouragement, he found no break from his, his darkness and uh, the black dog that uh, Winston, Winston Churchill used to talk about in his depression. And uh, one of the last times they were leaving, uh, the two friends left, and Luther just stopped and turned at the door and looked at him and said, Philip, the gospel is totally outside of you. And that was the beginning of a ray of hope because Melanchthon, like all of us, naturally when things are going bad, we look in the mirror. We look inward. And when he looked inward, he spiraled downward. The gospel is constantly trying to rip our eyes off of ourselves and back to the promises of Scripture. I love to think about myself. I love to look at myself in the mirror. It's not a good thing spiritually. Paul coming back and saying, land on this promise. 
that God is at work in you and through you and in spite of you, and this is the wonder of the gospel. Can, can you believe this? Can you grab hold of this and find yourself to be at peace? Paul goes on at the end of 23, may your whole spirit, soul, and body, <clears throat> the whole of you, every part of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. That's a future promise. He's promised us something in the past, that that reconciliation has occurred forever and cannot be undone. He promised something now in the present, and that is that He is at work. He is currently at work in you. And now this final, and that is a promise for the future. And He grounds it in the nature of God. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. The Greek actually says, He will surely do it. Because He is faithful even to His faithless people. What's going to happen if you believe that when you leave here? What's going to happen to you? You will drop your anger, or at least some will subside. You will begin to be hopeful <clears throat> in the midst of hopeless circumstances. This world wrecks havoc on us and breaks us. And finally, this will give you a future peace and a future promise to land on. It's the crescendo that Paul has. I am telling you that God is going to be faithful to you even when you are faithless. Past promise, present promise, and a future promise. Um, so it, it works this way, and I'm going I'm to close here so that David won't get mad at me. <laughs> Had a slow burn to it, didn't you? <clears throat> there was a man <clears throat> years and years ago that um, was a pastor uh, over in England <coughs> he was an English clergyman named Robert Robinson. And uh, he had done what many pastors had done. Sensed the call to ministry, very excited about it, entered into it um, through the beatings and the difficulties of ministry and life and his own sin. He became cynical. Um, he slid into unbelief and he decided to leave the ministry. And he fell into moral lapse and he decided the best place for him to go was to go to Paris, France. That's where I need to be. I need to leave my wife. I need to leave my children. I need to leave my church. And I'm going to go to Paris, France. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, while he was there, and um, feeding every urge of his own, um, he had a little bit too much to drink one night, and he had to catch a carriage back to his hotel. And back then they shared carriages, kind of like you share an Uber, maybe. And... Um, he got in there, and there was a, a, a very well-dressed older woman. She was refined, and she was reading poetry. And um, they started to talk, and he, for some reason, just started to kind of bleed his heart and tell her a little bit of his story. <clears throat> and she said, this is what you need if you're a Christian. You Listen to this poem I'm going to read to you, just the first stanza. And she read it. Come thou fount of every blessing, Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for shouts and songs of loudest praise. He, that man started, that grown man started to weep. He said, I wrote that poem. I wrote that hymn. 
That's mine. I wrote that. I once believed that. And she was equal to his rebuffing her when she said, Streams of mercy never ceasing. This is the way back home. Believe it. Claim it. His streams of mercy to you never, ever, ever are shut off. He has done something for you in your past. He is doing something right now in your life and in your world and in your church and in your marriage. And He has promised that He's going to see you through. He is faithful to bring it to come to pass and He will surely do it. Trust Him. Trust Him. Struggle to believe the promise. And you will be free. Pray with me. Father, where we struggle to rest in Your promises for us, uh, we pray that You would be pleased to come blow the dark clouds of doubt away uh, from our heart and our minds. That You would renew us with a new faith and a new trust. That You would meet us here at the table and feed us. And we would know that You are faithful to all of Your promises. You will see us through. Your wrath has been satisfied and turned away, and you are at work in us. We love you and thank you for all of these things, and we give it to you and offer it to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.